3: Thanks so much for joining us on How She Does It. On this show, we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. Approximately one out of every eight to ten women will get diagnosed with breast cancer in her lifetime. Women are the heart of most families, which means that nearly every family will have some experience with breast cancer. We know how critical early diagnosis is, and we also know that advancements in diagnosing and treating breast cancer continue to occur almost daily. But for many women, the most important thing to consider in their journey is who should they choose as their doctor, if they do hopefully have a choice and if they have access to care. Dr. Elisa Port, chief of breast surgery and the director of the Dubin Breast Cancer Center at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, has been the doctor that thousands of women have turned to in their time of need. I met Elisa through our daughters when they were in kindergarten. And though the girls are grown, our friendship remains. I am fascinated by the role she plays in women's lives as their doctor, advisor, and very often therapist as she becomes, for a time, the most important person in these women's lives. Elisa, thank you so much for being here. What can I say? Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so excited
0: to speak to you about all things related to breast cancer.
3: So tell us about you. When did you know that you wanted to be a doctor? Did you have like an aha moment?
0: It's a great question. I think I'm the perfect example of anyone could be a doctor. And my path was actually a little bit more circuitous. I wasn't that person who, even though I grew up with a father who is a doctor and very close relatives who were, I wasn't sure that path was for me. I, in college, took some pre-med classes. I didn't love them. I was drawn to languages. I was a Spanish and French major. And as a result, I thought, someone will want to hire me. I actually graduated college speaking four languages. And I'm thinking, you know, like you, international banking, some kind of translational services, the CIA. Someone would want me. In fact, no one wanted me for those skills per se. So I decided at some point that I wanted to rethink the idea of being a doctor. Really, it was one day my father said to me, I was kind of aimless, in fact, and I think it's a great thing for people to hear because there are many people who come back to the idea of medicine, and you can do it almost at any point. Obviously, it's very rigorous. And so to be out of school and to go back to school five, 10 years later is more difficult to do, but it can be done. For me, I took two years off between college and medical school, boning up on pre-meds again because I didn't finish them in college. And then once I committed, I really doubled down and I ended up really excelling Medical school was great. It was kind of an extension of college, but it really wasn't until I was exposed to surgery that I knew this was my calling. For everyone ha- that that was my aha moment, Karen, is when I started in my surgery rotations as a medical student and I said this is what I I want to do.
3: So then how did you get into breast cancer surgery specifically? Yeah. So Originally in
0: surgery, I had a lot of things I was interested in. I was actually interested in orthopedics. I was super athletic. I was doing a lot of long road races and triathlons, and I thought that would be super cool. It was a very heavily male-dominated field, believe it or not, even more so than general surgery. If 10% of women were surgeons at the time I trained, only 2% were orthopedic surgeons. And as I got into rotating in orthopedics and sort of trying on the discipline of orthopedic surgery, I realized that that was not what I wanted to do. And so I gravitated more toward general surgery. And once in general surgery, it was sort of this almost like this narrowing and pyramidal kind of experience. First, it was general surgery. Then it was cancer surgery. And then within cancer surgery, I really wanted to focus on breast. And a lot of that was related to the idea that in general surgery, you're a little bit jack of all trades master of none. And I knew, yes, you give up a lot when you focus on just breast surgery, a lot of the training. When you train in general surgery, by the end of your years, I had done 250 appendectomies and 250 gallbladders and colon resections, and you feel really good about this incredible skill set you've developed, and then you decide you want to throw 90% of that away and just focus and hone in on one thing. It's a big decision to make, but I did decide that in the changing climate Really, the people, the role of specialization was becoming more and more common. And you couldn't really do something well unless you only did that thing. And that was what led me to breast surgery.
3: You've told me of what, in general, a first meeting is like with newly diagnosed patients and that the most likely way the conversation will go is that you will first say, you're going to be okay, which allows them to relax and be able to hear you when you talk about their case and how to proceed. What else do you hope to establish in those first meetings?
0: I mean, I think to your point before about why I became a breast surgeon, part of it is that I could say those words with absolute clarity and optimism and know that I would be right most of the time, that they would be okay. I wanted to go into a field where I could provide that optimism, provide that outlook, and not every field in cancer surgery is like that. I think the other things that you want to do is balance. A lot of people say to me, I don't need to like my surgeon. They just need to do a good job in the operating room. On the other side, there are lots of surgeons that take lots of time with people and they're extremely likable, but perhaps don't have the best skill set in the operating room, the technical skills, and perhaps are not as busy as a result. And I think what I try to convey is the balance between the two. Both of these for a patient are equally as important. You do have to like your surgeon. Maybe not like is the right word. Maybe it is connect or have some sense of chemistry that you feel like. I try to convey that I am this person's advocate and I'm their vessel and I'm their conduit to getting better. And I also like to convey that in many respects... The relationship is a collaboration, you know, and we have to work together to come up with the ideal plan. The unique thing also about breast cancer surgery is many women do have options. You're not always saying to someone, this is what I'm going to do. Sometimes there's a lumpectomy, a smaller surgery. Sometimes it's a mastectomy. Sometimes the woman has the choice. In fact, a lot of times. So you have to have a very trusting and very collaborative relationship to make these decisions together. To me, that's how it works best.
3: So it's interesting to me always, I think about you become such an integral part of their lives. And you're not only their doctor, you're trying to establish that collaboration you're an advisor, and you're a therapist. And for a brief period, you are the most important person in that person's life. You're everything. And there is no call that they would take before yours. So I'm wondering though, from your side, is it difficult to find a balance of detachment and being the doctor, the sort of scientific doctor, with the empathy that you feel as another human?
0: I mean, I think you're right. It requires two different, very diametrically opposed skill sets, and you have to work on both and know when to switch which on and off. There are so many jobs that require a multiplicity of skill sets. I mean, think about it just as a mother, even one moment you need to be warm and empathetic and the most loving person in the world. And the next minute you need to be the heavy and the disciplinarian. So, I think that there's lots of jobs. I think the interesting about surgery in particular is that the skill sets are so diametrically opposed. The skill sets in the OR, the most effective surgeons, are really mechanical, systematic, robotic, focused on their hands and their eyes. It's almost like a military operation or a sport or being in the heat of a championship game or something like that. But, you know, our patients are asleep and so we don't need to evoke empathy at that moment. And so there are times and the most effective surgeons know how to turn that on and off based on what the situation demands. I think equally as important, as you said, Karen, we walk into people's lives at one of the most critical junctures. We know that they're hanging on every word. You measure your words carefully. And then equally as important to me is to fade into the background. I shouldn't be the most important person of their life after I've done my part. The goal is to get them back to their lives and the people who care about them, families, friends, et cetera, and to fade into the background. And if I've done that, then I've done my job.
3: So do they teach you that both the detachment skill and the empathy skill? There's this motto,
0: That we use in surgery. There's a lot of sayings, right? Lore. One is watch one, do one, teach one, which means you've got to be a really quick study. You've got to be able to watch someone do a procedure. You've got to be able to then do it yourself. And then you've got to be able to know it well enough to teach the next level resident or whoever. And I think that that doesn't only apply to the technical skill part. We watch a lot our attendings, our superiors interacting with patients. And a lot of the training process is basically kind of cobbling together bits and pieces of the way we watch our teachers, our fellow surgeons interact with others and say, yep, I'm going to pick one from column A and one from column B. I like how that doctor gave that really bad piece of news that seemed to really work. And on the same side, you see people who you say, God, I never want to be like that. And so it is a learning process, but it's mostly process of observation and learning and watching the people before you. And again, I don't think it's so different. It's probably not that different in banking or law or whatever. When you're the junior person or the lowest person in the pecking order, you're kind of watching how the people above you are doing it. And There's a process in your head of assimilating the parts of what you're seeing that you want to call your own, that you want to make your own. We, for example, in our training program, we have breast surgery fellows. These are people who finished general surgery training and have decided they do want to be a breast surgeon. So they're going to do one full year training with us. And then they will be better trained than just general surgery to specialize in breast. And what they'll do is they'll rotate a month at a time with me and a month at a time with my partner, almost like a, an apprentice model. And there's things that they see for me that they're going to want to adopt for their own. And then they'll, there's things they'll see. So they're learning all the pearls from all the individual people that they then synthesize into their own practice.
3: So... On that note, you had a recent appearance on the Today Show with Jill Martin, and you very much guided her through her journey. And it was one part that was really kind of touching on that clip that I watched. She reached over and she touched you, and it was just so nice to see that she you could see she trusted you. She felt so at ease in your care. And tell us about that appearance on the Today Show and what you were hoping to show What's super interesting to me is I've done
0: a lot of TV before, a lot over the years. I never realized because I'm at work so early in the morning, I'm not like a daytime TV show watcher. So I'm usually in the OR when the Today Show's on or in with patients. I had no idea how big that audience is. You know, usually you're on TV and seeing patients the next day and they'll be like, one person will say, oh, I saw you on XYZ, Okay. After that appearance, I mean, everyone watches the Today Show, and I thought that that was really, really profound. I had no idea how much impact and how much reach, and that's why I think it's so amazing what Jill did. She knew the kind of extent and platform to convey some really, really important information. And first of all, it's it's always the patient's story to tell. It's not mine. But the fact that she wanted to include me as her doctor in the telling, I think, really lends some gravitas to that and really helps get the right information across. What I always say is there's different ways in 2023 for patients to get information about breast cancer. And a lot of it is patient to patient, from chat rooms, from online sources, et cetera. And that's amazing because experientially, I personally can't tell you what it's like to go through the process as a patient. I haven't had breast cancer and you can get a lot of information from other patients. However, With breast cancer nowadays, there's no one size fits all, and even two cases that seem very similar can be very, very different in some very substantive ways. So the amount of actual information an individual patient can get from someone else, even someone who, quote, has the exact same thing, can be very limited and actually misleading. And so the patient experience is super valuable, but it's limited in terms of One's own particular case. On the flip side, a doctor's information, which is obviously extremely valuable in guiding a person down the pathway. and what what Jill and I kind of did together was marry those two. She's talking about her experience, and I'm providing the backup information about genetics, about what a mastectomy is like, and so forth. And I think that's a very, very powerful way to convey information.
3: So I want to stop you right there because I want to talk more about information that people should know. But we're going to take a quick break.
0: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to
2: the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana
0: We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. off launches April 9th.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome back. I'm speaking with Dr. Lisa Port, Chief of Breast Surgery for Mount Sinai Health System. So, Lisa, I know you wrote a book in 2015. It's the new generation breast cancer book, How to Navigate Your Diagnosis and Treatment Options and Remain Optimistic in an Age of Information Overload. So, what are the main takeaways from that book and what's changed since you wrote it in 2015?
0: I didn't really set out to write a book. I didn't say, I want to write a book. Let me see what I can think of doing. What I noticed, Karen, was I felt like there was a need that needed to be filled up until that point. There were a few breast cancer books that were very encyclopedic and so forth, but more and more people were going to the internet. Now we're going on almost 10 years. So it was kind of the age of medical information explosion on the internet. And what I was noticing that was really, really, I was totally taken aback is that between the year 2000 and 2010, The survival from breast cancer went up 2% each year.
3: 2% for 10 years. Yep. So
0: if you were diagnosed with breast cancer after 2010, you were 20% more likely to survive than a decade before, than you had been diagnosed a decade before related to all kinds of things, better diagnostics, early diagnosis, better treatment methods, et cetera. But here's the point as it relates to the book. The survival was getting better and better and better. And yet people were coming into my office, the opposite, more doom and gloom than ever before. And I couldn't understand what was going on with this disconnect? Why was this happening? The real information was only getting better. And yet, people were more and more pessimistic and scared. And I figured out the missing piece was the internet. People were going online when they were newly diagnosed. And the internet for medical information can be a clearinghouse for doom and gloom. You know, people who do well often go on and live their lives and they're not going to dark places and chat rooms and talking in a desperate way and so forth. And so if you're newly diagnosed and you're going online, you often don't see the preponderance of happy stories. You see a lot of worst case scenarios and that can be very scary for someone newly diagnosed. When I set out to write the book, It was really not about saying, don't go to the internet. That ship had sailed, right? That was happening. It was really more about providing an infrastructure and a little bit of insulation and a little bit of distance saying, look, if you go on the internet You're going to find a lot of, here's how you read through it. Here's how you sort through it. And to provide a little bit, I hoped, restore a little bit of optimism. The scariest time for women when they're diagnosed is between the minute they get that diagnosis and the time they get in to see a doctor who charts a path. That can be a week. It could be two weeks, depending on access, depending on a lot of different things, And that's the time when people start spiraling and going down a rabbit hole and information seeking. They have no understanding of where they're going. They have no plan. And that's a really scary time. And so I really wrote that book, targeted at that particular period of time to prevent people from uh, really going to very dark places. I hoped.
3: Well, it's similar to your thought. I know you kind of say, all right, calm down. The first thing we do is try to calm down. But yeah. some other things are happening. These days, it seems like everybody wants to do an MRI scan. Yeah, and yeah, we I'm, can talk about that. Yeah, let's talk about Are you for or against? Yeah, so let's talk about MRI for
0: breast, and then let's talk about the thing that's out there, the celebrity-advocated full-body screening. So mammograms are the test of choice for detecting breast cancer in what we call the general population, right? So mammograms, the data is very clear. We've been doing mammograms for 50 or 60 years now, and it's very, very clear mammograms save lives, okay? In the age group starting at 40 and ideally doing them every year. And the data is pretty consistently show that. If you're doing mammograms every year, as opposed to not, if you get breast cancer, there's a much higher likelihood, 20 30%, depending on your age group, of surviving breast cancer than if you don't do the mammogram and pick it up just because you feel something or you see something when ostensibly it's much further advanced, okay? Anyway, mammograms are the the standard of care for the regular population. The thing is, is though, as we know, not everyone is at the same risk level. And there are people who are at higher risk levels. And there are people, mammograms pick up 90% of breast cancers, Karen, not 100%. So people always say, well, what can we do to close that gap? There are literally 10 to 15% of breast cancers where a woman can walk in and say, what is this lump? Her mammogram's normal, and yet it's cancer right? So how do we eliminate that? One answer is ultrasound. So ultrasounds are more frequently done now, added to mammograms, not in lieu of, not instead of, and they can pick up one or 2% more cancers in terms of closing that gap and can pick up cancers that mammograms potentially miss. Okay. And then we get to MRI of the breast. MRI is an incredibly sensitive test for breast cancer. We think it could pick up 98 or 99% of breast cancers. The issue is is because the price you pay for that sensitivity is a lot of background noise and a lot of what we call false positives and a lot of unnecessary biopsies and anxiety. So we generally reserve MRI of the breast for our highest risk populations. People with a family history of breast cancer, especially at a young age, people who are gene positive, women who have genetic predispositions to breast cancer are routinely screened with both mammogram and MRI. And that's the way in that group that we can reduce the chance, if God forbid they get breast cancer, that it's missed on screening, okay? That's very different. These tests in terms of for breast cancer screening are very, very well established and super well documented. That's very different from whole body screening. Let's just go on a fishing expedition and see what we find.
3: That's what you think whole body screening is?
0: That's what it is, either with an MRI or a CAT scan or what have you. And what people don't realize is is that number one, They don't pick up everything, okay? If I told you that a breast MRI takes one hour, okay, how long would you think a whole body MRI takes?
3: Depends on the body, but eight?
0: I don't know. Okay. What if I told you it was also one hour? You would say to me, how are they doing that? How are they seeing everything? And the answer is they're not. They have big, thick slices and sections, and they go through the body. And so if you can imagine the detail you're getting with one hour just focused on the breast, then that's kind of much less detail when you're devoting one hour to the whole body. So you're not seeing everything. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is, again, going back to false positives. When we do these MRIs, you pick up a lot of stuff. And some of the studies show that you have up to a 10 to 20% chance of finding something, okay? Now, that's fine and good if those things are life-threatening and you pick them up early, okay? But when you look at the data that we have, which is very limited, what's been shown, what's known so far, is that less than about 1% of those findings end up being an actual malignancy. And furthermore, some of those would have been picked up by standard screening anyway. So imagine you're a smoker and you're getting this full body scan and they find something in the lung. Well, as a smoker, you probably should have just been getting a lung CT focused on that and that would have been found. Imagine you find something in the colon. Well, if you're over 50, you should have been getting, a 45 now, a colonoscopy and that's how it would have been found. So... What I would say to people when you do these scans, and by the way, they cost a ton of money. Insurance doesn't pay for them generally because of the data that I'm about to give you. The yield in terms of actually finding something that is potentially, potentially life-saving is less than 1%. And the flip side, when you find all of this other stuff that ends up being background noise, how do we know it's background noise? Now you've opened up a can of worms. And the only way to find out if something is really a cancer or not is you're going to generate a lot of other tests and you may even generate invasive procedures that have their own risks, right? A lung biopsy, a liver biopsy, a surgery to take something out. These are all major, major interventions, which are important if you're going to save someone's life. But if it's a what's called a false positive, we haven't helped anybody. If you've generated thousands and thousands of unnecessary tests and more radiation exposure and invasive procedures that then just to prove that something is benign.
3: Mm-hmm. So but let me ask, more young women are getting breast cancer I think there was a study in, I don't know if you pronounce it, JAMA. Yes, we do. That showed cancers are on the rise for younger Americans, particularly under 50, for women. What's going on there? Why is that happening? Yeah.
0: No one knows the answer. Certainly, if no one knows, I don't know. We think it can be related to a couple of different things. Number one, lifestyle factors. Women who are diagnosed with breast cancer, the first thing they ask me is, how did this happen? What did I do wrong? The answer is, in general, nothing. The first thing I try to tell people is, this is not your fault. And when it's not your fault, that's a good. there's a good side to that and a bad side. The good side is, there's nothing you have to change or do, and you know you don't have to feel guilty about it. The bad part is there's nothing you can change or do to make an impact moving forward. But there are actually two lifestyle factors that do play a role in the development of breast cancer. And for women who get breast cancer can increase their risk of recurrence by a small margin. One is weight. So being overweight or obese increases one's risk of getting breast cancer. And if you have breast cancer or get breast cancer, it can increase the risk of it coming back. And the mechanism here that we think is at work is is that, especially in postmenopausal women, fat stores create estrogen. And so if you think about it, the more adiposity, the more fat stores, the more estrogen is being created, released into the bloodstream, which could potentially stimulate breast cancer cell growth and even a cancer. Okay, so that, that's what we think is going on. And there is a huge range of normal, but there is a point. Where weight becomes a factor that adversely affects health. And that's not subjective, that's objective. You know, when you get to a point with weight where your blood pressure is so high, you need medication to control it, related only to the weight. When you get to a point that you need an anti cholesterol medication, you need an anti sugar. Being overweight for years and years and carrying around that weight, it causes joint pains and it could cause arthritis and it can cause a lot of different things. And it can definitely increase the risk of breast cancer.
3: So let me ask you, though, something like Wegovy or Ozempic, could that actually have a positive effect I mean, theoretically,
0: if people can sustain long-term weight loss, of course it could. Absolutely. What I turn around and say is is like, sure, we don't know yet with these weight loss medications what the effects are, but we know there are profound adverse effects on health long-term for being significantly overweight or obese. So if you can take one medication, creates a situation where you can jettison five medications, right, which also have their own side effects and make you healthier overall. It's all about risk benefit for each individual person. And yes, potentially weight loss could impact, reduction, or positively affect reduction in risk of cancer. I mean, again, this is over years and it has to be sustained. We don't really know yet if weight loss with these medications is sustainable long-term. If you go off them, if can you stay on them? If so, how long? The jury's still out on all of that stuff. But the point is circling back to your question about young women in breast cancer is given the obesity epidemic in this country and the increase in average weight, et cetera. That could be one factor. The other factor is, is that we know black women tend to develop breast cancer younger. And that can be factoring in as well. And so there's a lot of ideas as to why we're seeing this. Some people say that women are going earlier to get mammograms and being diagnosed earlier. And so that may be related to increased genetic testing and understanding of risk. So there's a lot of potential factors. We can't point our finger at one particular thing.
3: Okay, there's a few hypotheses there to think about. So let me ask you this, what are some of the biggest myths about breast cancer? that you think need debunking? Okay, let's start with mammograms. I think a lot of people don't get mammograms
0: because of their concern about radiation exposure. So what I think they need to know that the radiation exposure related to a mammogram is about the same as a few transatlantic plane flights. Okay, so it's extremely low. Of all radiologic tests that are performed, it's one of the lowest. And so what I would say is if someone's really using that as a rationale to not get a mammogram, they should stop traveling and they should probably not go to places at high altitude where the radiation people who live in Denver, Mile High City, have a higher innate background exposure to radiation than people who live at sea level. And that's okay. It's it's all within the range of healthy. So I'd like to debunk that myth. I don't think that radiation exposure concern should be a reason for not getting a mammogram. So that's one. I think another thing is the the standard of care for diagnosing a breast cancer. If you find something on a mammogram or an ultrasound, you get a needle biopsy. So we can pretty non-invasively stick a tiny needle into the lesion and get a piece of tissue out and make a diagnosis that way, which is really Great, because then you have information that you need to sit down with someone and make a plan without their having had any surgery at all. And the old woman used to go into surgery, take a lump out, they'd find out 10 days later they had cancer, and it was usually back into surgery to do whatever else they needed to do. Nowadays, we do it non-invasively. But people do have this idea that the needle biopsy spreads cancer, and nothing can be further from the truth. So I think that's really an important one to know. People come into my office really scared, like, we have to get this out now because the needle biopsy push cells around that it's just not the way it works. Never seen a case of that. I think the third thing that's really worthwhile debunking is that women really, Understand a lot of women that if you don't have a family history of breast cancer, you're not at risk, right? 90% of women who get breast cancer have no family history.
3: 90%.
0: Yep. Women who get breast cancer, they're their family history. And women also use that as a, a misconception to not get screened. I don't have a family history. I'm not at risk. You started this with exact statistics, one in eight will get it, okay? And only 10% of them will have a family history. So we're all at risk and we all have to be screened. You know, breast cancer is the most common malignancy in women in America. 300,000 new cases are diagnosed each year. Okay, So we're all at risk and we all have to do what we need to do to maximize our chances of early detection if we get it. And then the last one I'll share with you is that, which is part of the thing that Jill was so amazing about sharing, is is breast cancer risk can only be passed down through your mother's side of the family. And her message was loud and clear, pay attention to both sides of your family. Now, it can be tricky For example, if your father has no sisters, how would you know if there's any family history if your father has one of three brothers or he's an only child? but you can pass down genetic risk from either a mother or a father's side of the family. And so pay attention to both when you're trying to decide whether or not you're at high risk or trying to figure this out with your doctor, trying to decide if you should get genetic testing. Those are some good ones. I think that by getting that information across These are the things that I feel like no matter how many times I talk about them, if you reach one more person that's willing to go now to get a mammogram or get genetic testing or understand
3: their risk, we've done some good. Good. Well, I hope we can reach more than just one more person. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to go to our lightning round.
2: Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. From the terrifying power of tornadoes to sizzling summer temperatures, AccuWeather Daily brings you the top-trending weather-related story of the day, every day of the week. You can learn a lot in just a few minutes. Stories that will impact you, such as how a particular hurricane may affect your area, Or, will that impending snow event bring more than just a winter wonderland? Occasionally, there are weather-related stories from the lighter side, like how a recent storm trapped tourists inside Agatha Christie's house, a setup perfect for a plot of one of her novels. And if there's a spectacular meteor shower or eclipse coming your way, we'll let you know if the sky in your area will be clear to check out the celestial display. You see, AccuWeather Daily is more than just weather. It's AccuWeather. Listen and subscribe to AccuWeather Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. That's AccuWeather Daily, wherever you get your podcasts.
3: And we're back with our lightning round. Okay, so you may know this as Would You Rather? And the only thing you have to do is just answer the question, don't think about it, just answer whatever pops into your head. All right, you ready? Yikes! You can do it. Okay, here we go. Would you rather drive or be driven? Be driven. Would you rather laugh uncontrollably or be moved? Laugh uncontrollably. Would you rather be in jeans or a dress? Jeans. I figured you'd say that. Okay. Would you rather be in the OR or anywhere else? In the OR or in the ocean. Okay. All right. In the OR, what music do you listen to? Four Seasons or Foreigner? Foreigner. I know you love it. I don't get it. I don't even get it. I don't get it. Okay. But it's your room. Four seasons, you mean
0: the classical? Yes, yes. Okay, we have a strict in my room. I'm very lenient. I ask patients what they want to hear going in or whatever. Classical, hard stop, hard
3: no. (laughs) Okay, well, they want you to be on your game. So if you want foreigner, then foreigner it is. Okay, absolutely. Would you rather be at a sporting event or a concert? Depends, depends, depends.
0: I mean, mm. who's your team? It used to be the San Diego Chargers. I like watching football a lot, but I don't really have a team now, so I would say maybe a concert.
3: Yeah. Okay. Would you rather be able to play any instrument or play any sport? Play any sport. Would you rather surf or ski or snowboard? A triple, would you rather?
0: Definitely not snowboard.
3: Surfing is something I
0: try to do every weekend in the summer. Love skiing, too. So I'd say surf. Okay.
3: Okay. Would you rather look at great art or go to the opera? Look at great art. I knew you would say that. Okay. Last one is what's the best investment you've ever made and what's the worst investment? And it's a broad definition of investment. It could be a class you took. It could be anything and the worst investment.
0: I think the best investment is... My husband is a medical technology entrepreneur, and he came up with an incredible, game-changing, transformational product for safety in the operating room to prevent sponges from being left behind when we do surgery. And that was just- When you say behind, in the body. Yes. So we've all heard these nightmare stories. And my husband was the chief resident in trauma at Bellevue, and they would have these terrible trauma cases Karen, where they would go through thousands of sponges, bloody sponges. We trained in the era also of HIV and AIDS. And so it was not only leaving the sponge behind, but then if the count was off and going through bloody sponges was a hazard and a biohazard to OR staff, nursing, et cetera. And he came up with this idea and he said, there's got to be a better way. And he developed a technology over 10 years with an engineer. He teamed up with a brilliant engineer named Bill Blair, who's based in San Diego. And the two of them developed what's called the Blair port wand, which is in each sponge that we use, there is a little chip, an RFID chip. And at the end of the surgery, you can wave a wand over the patient. And determine, so you don't have to count anymore anything. You just, all you care about is there anything left in the body. And this has been transformational. So that was the best. It took 10 years to develop that. And it takes a lot of money to develop a prototype and then get FDA approval, et cetera. And it's the best investment, both financially in terms of the way it paid off, but also in terms of the gratification for changing the lives of so many people and the impact it's had on the way we do surgery in this country and sparing patients the adverse events of having sponges left behind. So I think it's a ripple effect of good investment.
3: That's a good one. And
0: the worst? Worst? Oh my goodness. I would say I'm sure we've made some bad Financial investments.
3: But it could be anything. It could be like skipping a lecture because I was tired and it ended up being extraordinary or something.
0: I don't know. I think maybe it's sometimes, I think it's like a surgeon's mentality or something that you kind of block out. And we're like sharks, forward motion all the time. If you don't move forward, you're going to die. You're going to stagnate. So I don't know. I'd have to think about it a while longer to dig deep. Nothing comes to mind.
3: Maybe that's suppression and coping (laughs) mechanisms, or maybe maybe it's nothing terrible. Right, right. Exactly. Well, I know you're an optimist, so okay. Good. Yes, eternal. Eternal, which is great. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go because I know you're really busy, but thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I really appreciate it.
0: What can I say, Karen? It is always a joy to talk to you. And I thank you for the services you're providing to women everywhere. There's so many ways to help them and to provide them with these insights that are so
3: valuable. And I'm, I'm honored to be your guest. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. Thank you so much to Dr. Elisa Port for telling us what we need to know about breast cancer and what we thought we knew that's just plain wrong, and how she approaches her role at such a significant moment in her patients' lives. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the HerMoney community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Paschalides, with help from everyone at HerMoney. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward.